call me L, you can call me Ed, you just, just fucking call me, why don't you? everybody now welcome to live on four legs the definitive live pearl jam podcast and just like last week we are back with a special interview this is a bonus episode for all you guys and we're talking yet again about another pearl jam related book this is exciting this is fantastic when we found out that Stephen hyden was writing a book about pearl jam we got fascinated and excited right away because he's done some fantastic work over the years, and we're really excited to get to talk to him today at this conversation about his book. Let's just introduce us because you may have never listened to us before. So it's Randy Sobel that's over here. It's John Farrar that's over there. Hello, hello. This was a just a fantastic talk. I mean, we were. I, I think we can call him a friend of the show now. Like we had him on a couple of years ago for yeah. the Wrigley series. And and that was a great talk, and we had yeah. Once we found out about the book, it was like oh yeah, we need we we couldn't wait to get him on again. And and he will mention this in the talk. Like we were lucky enough to be able to kind of help out with some behind the scenes stuff and kind of dig up some things that hopefully helped him out that you'll get to read about in the book. But hope everybody goes in and checks it out. So if you're unfamiliar with Stephen Hyden, his work is just impeccable. Uh, he's written books on Radiohead. He's written books on the Black Crows. He wrote a book called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, which also involves the Pearl Jam Nirvana rivalry. He did a podcast on Pearl Jam a little while ago, a couple of years ago, called Vitalogyology. That went Part of through Celebration Rock. Yeah, if you look for Celebration Rock, yep. you can find it. Yep, and his current podcast is IndieCast, if you're interested in checking out what he does on a normal weekly basis. So, here he is. Let's just get right into our interview. He's the guy you want to hear from, not us. So, let's get to it. How, uh, last couple days, since it's been out for two days, how has the book been received so far? You know, I think it's been good. I, uh... It's still early yet, so I feel like people are just like reading the beginning of it, and they haven't read the whole thing. Uh, but you know, based on like what I've heard, and just based on sales, like the book is selling really well, which is you know obviously really exciting for me. When you're up there with yeah. Bill O'Reilly, you know you've made it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like it's so funny, you know. And I don't want to put too much emphasis on Amazon here because they are the evil corporation, but they are. All, they're also like the main place, like where people buy books that, yeah, like I'm knocking on the door of Bill O'Reilly. Like I'm right behind him. And it's so weird because he has this weird book. It's like, it's called Killing they're Muhammad all Ali. <laughs> but, but it's like Muhammad Ali, John Lennon, and like somebody else. I, I forget who else. Cause like all the Bill O'Reilly books, it's like, it's about killing somebody. Right. And, uh, John Lennon's the only sort of like I think mu like musician in there, so like he gets classified as like rock music. So <laughs> it's like preventing me from being like the bestseller in rock music. I'm like right behind him, but uh, no, I mean I, I think it's just a testament to uh, you know this great community of Pearl Jam fans who seem to be excited about the book, and I'm I'm really thrilled about that, and you know. I hope they like the book because I think it is written from the perspective. I, I am a music critic, but I'm also a fan. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I dug down deep with this book and, uh, hopefully they'll appreciate the book when they read it, you know? And, you know, like with, and I've, and I've talked to you guys a bit behind the scenes, you know, I'm just always curious to hear like what hardcore fans think of the sure. book, because if they like the book, then that's enough for me. You know, it doesn't really matter even like what a book reviewer might say, like sure. if the real fans like it and, and they seem to like it, you know? So, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes from there. Yeah. We're considered real fans and, and we like it. So, <laughs> I mean, you can't get much bigger than that. I guess. Well, exactly. Well, you know, and I was very, yeah, I, I, you know, cause I, I, I talked to John a bit. I know John was into the book. I know Randy, you were like off, seeing a bunch of Pearl Jam shows. I'm a very slow reader. Yeah, so... <laughs> so I finished it this uh, afternoon. So I don't even know what you think yet. I, I, I talked to John a bit. It's I, I know that he was into it, yeah. and I'm hoping you were into it too, Randy. Definitely was. Uh, um, so yeah, I... 
but you know, it, it's always threading a needle with a book like this because uh, obviously you want the fans to like it because that's the core constituency. But then I'm also thinking of the person who uh, doesn't know anything about Pearl Jam and will pick up this book and hopefully it'll turn them into a fan, you know? Because like part of the thing with, with me with writing this book was... You know, I, I feel like Pearl Jam's legacy in a way is a little misunderstood or maybe underrated. And, um, you know, I want to do my part to correct that, you know, uh, and to uh, let people know who aren't already in the tribe uh, that this is a band that you should love and or at least be interested in. And uh, so that was that was definitely on my mind as I was writing the book. That was one of my biggest takeaways that it felt like this was written for the casual fan and the rock and roll fan to understand where they came from and understand the story of Pearl Jam, even if maybe their music isn't quite their cup of tea. But it felt like if the casual fan read this book, they would fully understand Pearl Jam more than by just listening to their records or just even knowing a little bit of their history by watching music videos and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, and, and look, this is part of like what your podcast does. Like you're focused on the live experience of Pearl Jam. You're digging into the bootlegs. And I tried to do that in my book because I really feel like if you want to understand this band, you can't just listen to the hits that you hear on the radio or or even the albums. You have to dig into the live material. And that was something that I was really uh, committed to at the beginning of this uh, project. That I wanted to, as best as I could, you know, sort of explore like the entire capacity of like what this band does. And I really feel like Pearl Jam as good as their records are, and they, I think they have a lot, a lot of great records, that if you really want to love this band, you have to appreciate the live aspect of it. So that was something that I really put a premium on as I was writing the book. I wanted to make sure that I was representing the live aspect of what they do throughout their career. Because like The Who or Bruce Springsteen, if you just listen to the records, it is just part of the story. You know, you really do have to kind of dig into the shadow history in a way of bootlegs to really understand like why this is a great American rock band. And it's my hope that the book expresses that, you know, cause that was something I was, I was very sort of conscientious about as I was writing the book. Well, I remember there definitely being some, like cryptic tweets that you were you're like this is going back a couple of years maybe about pearl jam it's like oh he might he's got something in the works and then like how long was was the process of putting this together and did you know that you were gonna like kind of emphasize the live material from the very beginning yeah so um so my previous book was about radiohead it came out in 2020 it was called this isn't happening and it's funny, I'll tell you this story. I don't know if I should tell this story, but I'll tell this story to you guys because, you know... And by the way, I, I don't know if you've mentioned this. I like I thank the lot... I, I thank your podcast in my acknowledgments because you guys... I, I, I feel like listening to your show was very informative for me and also just talking to you, to you guys a bit behind the scenes was very informative for me. So I just want to thank you for the insight that I feel like I've gotten oh. from from your show. Very nice. I hope, yeah. I hope we helped. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, and in the acknowledgments of, of my book, I just tried to thank various fan communities because I think that the fan communities of Pearl Jam have been so valuable in documenting the story of this band. If it weren't for the fans, there'd be so much that was lost. You know, to... To, to time, you know, like we wouldn't know so much about this band if it weren't just for fans posting online, doing podcasts, doing blogs. Um, that's, it's just like one of the beautiful 
aspects of this band that like so many fan historians exist in the Pearl Jam community. And I really, I really like want to make sure that I tip my cap to them because it's, it's such an invaluable uh, resource. And you definitely got all the right people. Uh, Five Horizons. It's it's the that's that's the that's the database right there. And they were the ones that kicked it all off. I don't even know if we do what we do if not for them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Five Horizons. Like the people that did that. I mean, it's it's invaluable. And also, I mean, I didn't thank this website in my acknowledgement because I, I was just like I was paranoid I didn't like want to give them too much attention just because like I'm worried about the, them getting shut down but I think any Pearl Jam fan knows that there's there's a site out there where you can download pretty much any bootleg, yeah. Yeah. like Pearl Jam bootleg that you want and that was like so invaluable to me as I was writing this book just the tapers out there the, the, the people who have taped Pearl Jam shows over the years documenting these things um it, it, it's so amazing and i feel like i forgot your your initial question here as i'm just thanking all of these <laughs> fan historians but but again I, I you know i think that's so important i i, I really want to make sure that those people are acknowledged and uh because it, i mean someone taping a show in 1993 or 1992 like 30 years ago like how amazing is it that they did that that we can listen to these shows all these years later and we can compare them to, you know, we can actually have a history of this band. It's so, it's so great. But uh, anyway, I got distracted. What was the original question? I can't remember. Well, just like, what was it like putting the book together? Uh, How long did it take? And did you know from the beginning that you were going to use the live material as like a jumping off? Yeah. So, so I pitched the book originally, like right after I wrote um, my previous book about Radiohead. And it's interesting because in this might say something about the publishing industry. Like they originally like weren't that interested in the book. So they weren't into it right away. And like, so there was like a nine month period after I pitched it originally that they weren't really into it. And then, um, they changed their mind later on and then they wanted to do it. And it was actually kind of cool because I had this like long period where I wasn't really working on the book, but I was still listening to like a lot of Pearl Jam stuff. Uh, so it was like a great preliminary period building up to that. Um, but yeah, I think from the beginning, I always knew that the live stuff would be a big part of the book because um, I think with with a band like Pearl Jam, especially because of the Pearl Jam 20 documentary and book that have come out, it's like kind of well-trod territory if you're only going to talk about the albums you know like people have a general idea of like what 10 is or like what verses is or you know vitology so on and so forth um and i talk about all those things in the book but in in my book but i just felt like the live side of what they do it just felt like a little undercovered in terms of a book i mean obviously you guys are doing it on your podcast and you're doing a great job doing it and uh you're doing the lord's work here exposing great (laughs) pearl jam live shows here but it just seemed like that was a little under discussed with pearl jam and i think that if you really want to understand why they're so great to not talk about the live stuff you're just missing like a huge piece of the story. And in my book, I, I liken Pearl Jam to the who and Bruce Springsteen in that way. And you look at the who and Bruce Springsteen, they both have, obviously they've, they have both put out many great albums, but I think any serious fan of, of those artists would say that if you had the choice between listening to an album or a bootleg or a live album of what they do, you'd pick the live album. There's just something that happens when those artists are playing live. It 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 just takes their material to a different level. And I I, I think Pearl Jam is like they're part of that continuum. They have many great albums, but 
I just feel like I would rather listen to like their live stuff really than their albums really. And so that was just something that I, I felt like added extra dimension to like what I was going to be writing about. So yeah. So from the beginning, that was always going to be something that was a big part of the book. Yeah. 100%. All the live stuff that's happened just tells their story. I mean, you can't, anything that you're talking about with the history of Pearl Jam, you can't not talk about Ross killed. You can't not talk about some of those big shows. You actually like most other books or most other platforms would have written about like a drop in the park or something like that from 92. And and you didn't, you didn't touch up on those, which I I think was a good idea because that kind of, everybody has sort of that idea in their mind that Pearl Jam is just this band and not, not us, obviously, that is stuck in 1992 and everything that they did in 1992 defines them. So I think not fully putting attention square on those moments where Eddie's doing the stunts and everything like that, I think actually gave the band a little bit more of a mature sort of focus. Yeah, I mean... A big part of the book for me is talking about the 2000 tour, which I really feel like that is Pearl Jam becoming the band that they're going to be in the 21st century. Because you're right, you could talk about 92, 93, where Eddie's, you know, climbing on the scaffolding and above the stage and like, you know, Jeff and, and Mike and Stone are running around going crazy on stage, which is... Amazing. I mean, I, I write about like, you know, them playing Porch in 1992 and how amazing that is. And that's such a, um, you know, like a moment in time that you can't ignore if you're going to talk about Pearl Jam. But, you know, if they were going to do that as a band in their 30s, it just would have looked ridiculous or it would look like they were like trying too hard. You know, they had to find a way to have that energy of their early years, but also to find some nuance, you know, that they could, or like a little bit of craft, you know, and, and I feel like that 2000 tour, and you could say like 98 or 2002, I mean like that 98 to 2002 period where they get Matt Cameron into the band and like, they're really becoming who they're going to be as a band going forward. I just think it's such a fascinating period because you, you listen to those those tapes at that time and it's like Mike McCready and Stone Gossard, how they just weaved their guitars together at that time and like how Amit and Cameron are locking into uh, themselves like as a rhythm section and then you have, you have Vetter who is still this great front man, but it's not the same sort of operatic do or die Eddie Vedder of the early 90s, which is great and brilliant, and we all love that, but is not sustainable over the long haul. And it almost becomes like a metaphor for like how this band was able to survive for 30 years, you know? Because if they had always been that band that they were in 1992... They would have burned out. They'd be already finished by now. But they found a way to become a band that could be extremely powerful while also having different colors, you know, in in the paintbrush, you know, that they could also be, again, a more nuanced band, a quieter band, uh, a gentler band, and then also kind of blow up at the same time. So, yeah... when you really kind of listen to like their live evolution, I think it just adds like a different part of the story, you know, and it's funny cause like we're talking today. And I don't know if you guys care about this at all, but, um, you know, there's, there was a pitchfork list today of like the 150 greatest <laughs> albums of the nineties. We did talk about that on our discord. I hate those things, but go on. You did. And there's no Pearl jam <laughs> albums. And like, you know, it's not a surprise that pitchfork wouldn't, include a Pearl Jam album because they've never liked Pearl Jam. I write about this in my book, you know, the very like, like, you know, snarky per, like pitchfork reviews of Pearl Jam records. But 
it just shows like a, fe- a you know, to not include them in a '90s list. There's many criticisms you could make of of that because Pearl Jam is obviously a foundational artist of of, of '90s music. Uh, but I I think it just speaks to an ignorance of like what their history is and what their evolution was and. You know, I I feel like a lot of people that voted on that list probably have only heard like two or three songs from ten on the radio over and over again, and they don't really understand like what this band is. But anyway, that's just like a tangent. Here, no, it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, out of two hundred and fifty songs, the only appearance was two forty one with Corduroy, yeah. and it wasn't even a ten song. Like, don't get me wrong, Corduroy on any list is is a good thing. But like no black, no Jeremy, no alive. Like that's why I don't take it seriously. Because if they didn't take the time, and I'm sure there are other bands that they didn't really consider in the same way as Pearl Jam, but if they didn't take the the time to do that and kind of give them their due when they were one of the biggest acts of the '90s, then it, it really just doesn't matter to me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, when you make those lists. It is about, I mean, you can go one, you know, one of two ways. You can say like, well, this is purely sort of like my own opinion, or you can try to like make it representative of the era. And I think that either way is in a way valid, but if you're going re- with representative of the era to only have like one Pearl Jam song on there and to have it so low is, uh, it seems sort of like laughably a historical you know, at the very least. Um, but, you know, I, but at, at the same time, it's like Pearl Jam is a band that is always sort of, you know, one of the things that's allowed them to, I think, have such a great career is that they operate outside of the systems like where that matters, you know? Yeah. Well, I think if you if you ask them, probably they'd be happy not to be included on that <laughs> list. Yeah. yeah. Right, exactly, um, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I want to go back to the last stuff real quick. You, you kind of build the book around this moment at Red Rocks when they come out on stage and do the the seated section, and uh, you start the book with "Falling Down," one of their most obscure songs. Uh, what was the thinking behind that? Well, I think because if you read a lot of of the journalism about Pearl Jam in the '90s, it seemed like a lot of people were writing their obituary before they were finished, you know, and I'm talking about magazine articles, but also like the Kim Neely book, uh, five against one, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I'm sure you have both have read, but like, if you read that book, they, uh, you, know, you, you know, she really seizes upon the candlestick park concert. Yep. From uh, I believe it was June twenty fourth, nineteen ninety five, as being a death knell for the band. And for those who don't know, and I'm sure many of your listeners know this already, this was the famous show, like where Eddie Vedder got food poisoning during the show, and I believe he played, I believe he performed about seven or eight songs before he was literally doubled over and he couldn't perform anymore. And Neil Young came out and played with Pearl Jam, and you think like, oh. Neil Young and Pearl Jam playing. That seems pretty awesome. A lot of people would like that. No, it didn't go over very well. People very upset. They were raining down booze. And this is against the backdrop of Pearl Jam at the time having their uh, battle against against Ticketmaster. They're playing a lot of backwater venues. They're one of the most popular bands in the world, but it just seemed like to many people that they were imploding at the time. And after that Candlestick Park show, they canceled a bunch of concerts. It just seemed like, to again, in the moment, I think a lot of people assume that, like, this is the self-destruction moment for Pearl Jam. They're going to be finished. But, of course, we know now in retrospect that that's not true. Pearl Jam has continued on, and they've had a very great career. So... I was thinking about that concert and I was like, well, what is a show like a little bit before that? You know, because we know, you know, at the moment people were trying to write their obituary based on this concert, but Pearl Jam lived. So is there something around this concert that 
can maybe explain why why they survived. And I've always been a fan of that Red Rocks bootleg, the uh, June twentieth, nineteen ninety five, four days earlier. And it's such a fascinating show to me because if you listen to like the first part of it, it is kind of a shambles. You know, they come out, they're sitting down. They played Jeremy, and this was like one of the first instances of them playing Jeremy without a chorus. You know, it's sort of like yep. the like the cock blocking version of Jeremy. Like you're not gonna get like the big <laughs> uh sort of uh you know anthemic release from this. Like they're yeah. intentionally cutting off the most dramatic parts of the song. Uh and it's you know pretty amazing for that and then they come out they do the nick cave song uh the ship song and like they don't really know how to play it and it seems a little chaotic and then they do this song falling down which they only played on this show and it's a beautiful song it seems like a song that like if they had honed it and really focused on it that it would at least be a memorable song and maybe even a hit song. Like it, it, it feels like that kind of song when you listen to it, but they only play it on this show. And to me, it just seemed like a great example of like what Pearl Jam eventually became, that they weren't going to be a band that was pursuing hit songs. They were going to be a band that was pursuing moments, you know, moments in time that if you go see them, you're going to see something special that's only going to happen in this show and it's not going to be replicated ever again. So that's going to be the reason why you're going to want to see every show you can, listen to every show you can, and that's going to be the thing that makes them special as opposed to this sort of like mass market MTV radio hit thing that they had been in the early 90s. So to me, that's like why that was significant. It just seemed like if you're going to try to explain the transition that Pearl Jam made at that moment in time from this very sort of ubiquitous mainstream band to a more sort of spontaneous in the moment cult band. I just liked that moment. It just seemed like that worked really well. So I, I... so that's why I seized upon that in the first chapter. Uh, I love falling down. They actually recorded it for No Code and Yield, and like that's one of my white whales. Hopefully, someday we'll get those recordings on a box set or something. Yeah. Um, were there any songs that you wish you could have included that you weren't able to? Well, you know, I don't think so. I mean, I think like with okay. the um, like the structure of the book, it has this mixtape structure, like where I'm. You know, each chapter corresponds with the song, but, you know, the chapters aren't really about that song. It's about using that song as an entry point to talk about, like, bigger things. And I've seen people say, like, well, this is, like, my favorite songs on a mixtape. And let me tell you, if I made, like, a mixtape of Pearl Jam songs, like, I wouldn't put Bush Leaguer on my (laughs) mixtape, you know? Like, I put it as a chapter because I thought... Well, I knew that that was a great way to talk about Pearl Jam's, uh, you know, tour in the early 2000s that corresponded with the beginning of the Gulf War, you know, like, because I really wanted to talk about that period because, you know, they were touring America basically during the Gulf War and they were protest, they were protesting the Gulf War in real time. Iraq War? Is that what you're... Yeah, I'm sorry. The Iraq War, I'm, uh, the Gulf War, I guess, is like the ni- the early '90s war. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Like the second Gulf War or Gulf War Part Two or Iraq War, or whatever. Which I think is like another really courageous moment in the band's career. I, I really, you know, uh, uh, if you want to talk about like Pearl Jam taking a stand in a real way, you know, them touring at that time and really protesting a war that was like overwhelmingly supported by Americans. And even like you think Pearl Jam's audience would generally be on their side, but even at that time there were people that were uh, sort of skeptical of, of their activism at that time. 
know, and this is the same time, like where the Dixie chicks are being, you know, crucified at the stake and you just have so many just weird things going on in culture. Uh, you know, really ugly, uh, sort of jingoistic things going on in America at that time. And Pearl Jam literally playing, you know, sort of like in the, the eye of the storm, you know, at that time. So that's why I talked about Bush Leaguer, even though I, I don't think Bush Leaguer is a great song necessarily. But, um, but anyway, yeah, so I don't know if there's like a song. That, I mean, there's so many great songs, so many songs that I love that are not chapter headings, you know, in this book. Sure. Uh, but I think the the songs I picked fit with like the themes that I wanted to write about. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think that, you know, off of the Bush Leaguer topic, I think that a lot of this band is in their history is just zigging when everybody else is zagging or, or the opposite. Totally. And, um, and one of the big things you kind of mentioned that, you know, what people would call the death knell for, for them would be that, that polo field show in, in San Francisco. But they follow that up and they're putting out a record in the next year in, in no code. And you had a really good assessment. This is something that we talked about, you know, almost, uh, you know, any, any time that we go to 1996 or 1998, we talk about no code and yield and how no code basically, you know, with, with who you are starting it and being the first single, it became a, a nothing record to people in uh, the, uh, you know, sort of the casual fan that weren't already in Pearl Jam. So I take, take me through that thought of the whole no code and yield idea that you had that if they had released yield first before no code, things would have worked out differently for them. Well, I mean, this is something, this is like a thought experiment that I have in the book that if, you know, how would Pearl Jam's career be different if they had put out a record like Yield, which is generally looked at as a more accessible, uh, you know, straightforward rock record? If they had put that out after Vitology, would that have changed the trajectory of their career? And then they put out No Code after that. And in the book, I, I dispel that idea fairly quickly because I think the music scene generally changed so dramatically in the late nineties that, you know, like by 98, you, you know, that was like the stronghold of like new metal and like, uh, you know, boy bands and Britney Spears. Like that was like music changed so much from like the early nineties to the late nineties. I mean, it really is like two decades in a lot of ways, you know, like, like 91 to 95, 96 to 99. It's, it's like two different eras, but I did posit this brain experiment or thought experiment about, you know, what if a record like yield came out in 1996 and they put out given to fly as the single in 96. It does seem like at that time, that record would have even been bigger than it was in 98. I mean, as it turned out, like Yield, I think was like their last platinum record. Uh, and then, you know, then they really kind of went into the wilderness of like the late nineties and early two thousands after that. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think it's an interesting thought, but again, I think in the book, I ultimately say that it wouldn't have mattered either way. You know, if they, you know, no matter how they would have released, I mean, no code might have like totally flopped. I mean, no code probably would have totally flopped in 98, (laughs) you know, because that would have been, it would have even stuck out more at that time because it would have been competing with like follow the leader by corn and sure you know limp biscuit it would have been totally bizarre at that time um you never would have thought in 1999 that pearl jam would have outlived those bands yeah exactly you know which but again it just speaks to how decisions that pearl jam made in the 90s 
that in the short term seemed unwise and haphazard actually paid off in the long run. Because I think their insistence on following their own path and also on being a great live band and not relying on MTV or the radio or the mainstream music industry or all the sort of conventional ways that bands get big and just saying like, we're going to connect with our fans. We're going to rely on our fans to be with us. It just totally paid off in the long run. You know, like that was the right way forward because the music industry was in the midst of falling apart at that point. You know, we didn't know that in the late 90s and early 2000s, but that's what was happening. Like, and especially for rock bands, like the sort of things that held up bands like Pearl Jam in the 90s, they were not going to be holding up bands in like that in the 2000s. You know, and the only way for a band like Pearl Jam to survive was to make a direct connection with fans and to be like, we love you, you love us, we're going to, you know, we're going to do our thing and screw this other stuff. And I, I, you know, I think Pearl Jam was really ahead of the curve on that. And that's why they're still around today. And a lot of bands from their generation, like, aren't, you know, like a lot of bands fell apart uh but but they didn't and i think it was because they were wise in that way even though it didn't seem wise maybe like in the late 90s when they were you know sort of laying the groundwork for that um you do kind of hit on this at the at the end of the book when you talk about you know kind of all the the dedications that you get when you go to a pearl jam show now and like seems like every other song they're you know, they're, they're dedicating this to someone who's lost someone or this person who's going through this, or, uh, he's even, you know, on this, this last tour that just ended, it was seemed like it was every night, uh, they were going through the list. Has there ever been like, and you're obviously very well versed in rock history. Has there ever been another band that's been connected to their fans like this in that way that that's, that's been able to sustain them like this? You know, I mean, obviously you, immediately think of a band like the Grateful Dead that has a huge grassroots audience, but they don't shout out their fans in the same way that Pearl Jam does. I mean, the only other example that comes to mind is like the Bruce Springsteen. But I think even um, Springsteen, I don't know if he does it as specifically as Pearl Jam does. I was listening to the Milwaukee like, like 10, 20, 14 show. And there's a moment in that show. And I don't even know like how this happens. But Eddie is introducing. I'm trying to forget what song it is. It's after Even Flow. But I, I forget what song he's introducing. But he's talking about. like He actually shouts out a guy in the crowd. And he's like. Your girlfriend who's living in Korea right now, she really misses you and she just wants you to know that, you know, she's thinking of you right now. And then he, and then they play a song and I'm like, how the hell did Eddie Vedder get this like message? It's just like, you know, it's so unbelievable. Like I can't think of many instances of like that level of specificity happening with a band at their level you know that seems really unique to me um like like springsteen doesn't do it to that degree i feel like it'd be more general than that uh but it's just like man like is eddie vetter like working like an answering service or something like how the (laughs) hell does he get this mess like like, can I get a message to Eddie Vedder to like shout out like one of my old friends and he could, <laughs> well, I, you know, it's kind of amazing. I think one of the things with that is, and it's going back to the whole fan community and how DIY it is. And uh, throughout this whole entire tour, I had friends like people that I had met through this community. I had friends that gotten dedications that I knew that, you know, they had said like, uh, there was one, uh, a girl named Debbie and she had lost her father and she wanted to get sad played at, in St. Louis, which I was 
just like yes that, that that's my biggest chaser song right now and we were able to get it and i think it was because mainly what happens is that you know once it gets circulated a little bit and once the fans kind of get on somebody's side then somebody in the band gets to see it gets to know about it and it gets back to them it's happened so many times it happened yeah. Earlier this year at an Earthling show, we lost uh, a great member of the community. His name was Sean Sullivan. And, you know, his whole, uh, you know, just mantra was was smile. And, like, all of his friends, they attached that song to him. So at, a, at, a, at an Earthling show where they don't play non-Eddie written songs, they, they pull up smile for him. Like, that's a huge, you know, just acknowledgement of how passionate this fan base and this community is to to go off and take something that they that wasn't practiced that you know i I know that him and glenn had played it a couple of times but the the rest of the guys probably didn't know it too well so like that's sort of and like that's not unique like that almost happens every other show weirdly enough yeah and this is something I tried to express in the book that to have that kind of community uh, around a band like this that started from like a very mainstream place. Like they were this sort of enormous rock band very early on in their career. And it could have very easily become a situation with, with Pearl Jam where they just became another sort of anonymous arena rock band that goes on forever or they implode. But, you know, like people don't talk about Aerosmith in the way that you just said, you know, like like Aerosmith is this huge band. Yeah. I like a lot of Aerosmith music, but like, they're just like an enormous band or like even you too. Like I love you too, but there is sort of like an enormity about them that you don't necessarily associate like with that sort of grassroots um, connection. And the fact that Pearl Jam was able to thread the needle like where they could be this big band but also feel intimate, you know, that you you feel like you know who these guys are or that they would care about the people in the audience that's such a unique thing and uh i think it's at the center of like what makes this band special you know that they're not just like another big time rock band that they're able to be big and small at the same time yeah i uh I f- fully of course 100 percent agree with that the other bands that you mentioned you two and Aerosmith, like there is an agenda for those bands. U2 goes out there every single night. They have a light show. They have a big videotron on stage and Bono will do the catwalk stuff and they have a thing that they do every single night and it's the same set list. If they play 20 songs, you're getting the same encore, you're getting the songs in the same spot and they decide upon this like two months before the tour starts so they can practice everything in order, what have you. And Pearl Jam, I think this is why, especially live, this opens it up for everybody, is that they basically just go into the next show and they're like, all right, well, what haven't we played in a while? What have we been feeling lately? What What's the history with this city that we can attach to? You know, if you're in Nashville, we want to pay some credit to the, the, the local record store, so let's play Spin the Black Circle, stuff like that. You know, they're, they're always ever-changing, and I think from, obviously, from a fan perspective and a community perspective, that's what draws you in just as much as, you know, the the people that are getting dedications and, and sort of Pearl Jam kind of being in this small community with us, but they have allowed for their live show to be a spectacle because every single night is different, and all those bands that I mentioned, you can mention like 10 more bands that are just exactly like that. Maybe they change one song per night. You know, a Rolling Stones, I, th- I know they used to do like a vote a song or something like that, and they would pick a different song out of that, but every single night would be the same if 
there were two nights in one spot, you went to go see him twice, you saw the same show. Pearl Jam can play two nights in the Garden, two nights in Philadelphia, as you talked about Philadelphia a ton at the end. And the first night in Philadelphia, completely different than the second night in Philadelphia, because the second night they said, all right, well, this is the night we're going to do 10. So it feels like out of just in general, just bands and how they treat their live act, that's what sets them apart and maybe that's why Pearl Jam to the casual fan doesn't quite connect as well because if they do go see him live they aren't going to they will get 10 songs but they're going to get songs that feel like big moments that are songs like Sad and Smile which they might not know as well yeah and I mean, it's interesting hearing you talk about that because I feel like, in a way, Pearl Jam has helped set that as a new standard. Because I see younger bands who do that sort of thing. Like, I just saw the Gaslight Anthem uh, last week. Very influenced by Pearl Jam. Very influenced by Pearl Jam. And they're doing something very similar to Pearl Jam, like where they're playing different songs every night and they were really shaking it up and and really making a point of making each night an event. And I think that that expectation didn't necessarily exist before this band. You know what I mean? Like there were, I think this, I think the idea before that was that you would always just kind of do the same show because there's not the expectation that, fans are going to be following you around and wanting to see something different. You know, you only, you know, the the ideal is to just play like the best show you can and do it over and over again. Uh, Which is, you know, I mean, that has its own appeal. I mean, like you too, like they're a great live band and I'm sure there's like a lot of people who only see one U2 show on their stadium tour because that's all they can afford. It's like pretty expensive. So it's like, just give me the best possible set list that you can give me on this particular night because I'm not going to see more than one show. Um, But with a band like Pearl Jam, even if you're not seeing multiple shows, there is a certain kind of energy that comes across when you know that the band doesn't have it down by rote. You know, that like they're flying by the seat of their pants a little bit and uh, there might be a mistake or a disaster that could happen. There's always that possibility, but that fear of that happening, it gives it a special energy that pushes the show to a different, uh, you know, level that it wouldn't have otherwise. Um, Yeah, I mean, again, I think... With this band, I think in the popular understanding of like what they are, that's the big missing element. And I, my hope with my book is that I can help to express that or I can help to fill in the blank there. Because if you only know Pearl Jam because you remember Alive and Even Flow, as great as those songs are, you're really only seeing about 10% of the picture. You know, you really need to understand the totality, not just of their recorded catalog, but like what they've done live. And and I'll say that, you know, I think their live work will be their legacy. Their, you know, sort of reputation as a live band, I think is their calling card. And that's something I really tried to pay tribute to in the book and I, I and I hope that fans love it but I also hope that people who maybe are just curious about the band and want to learn about them a little bit that that's how they'll connect with them because I really think that like if you really want to love this band the live stuff is going to be the thing that turns you into like a real fan let's kind of talk about your personal 
experience with Pearl Jam because I think this is pretty vital to the book. And you talk about your first show being at the Target Center, I believe, in what? Was it 2000 or 98? It was 98. You'll 98. So you and John have very, very similar paths where you mentioned that in 1998 that was kind of your you know last run with pearl jam for the 90s and then there was a big gap in between where you got back into them and you know take us on a little bit of that story of how your fandom sort of developed and then dropped and then came back a little bit well you know i i turned 14 a week and a half after 10 came out you know, 10 comes out. I think it was August 27th or 27th. You got it. That's 27th. Right date. 27th. Same day as No Code. Uh, but, yep. but at 96. Um, and my birthday is September 7th. Oh, uh, shit. I'm September 8th. Oh, there you go. Okay. So. John, September 14th. Oh, 14th. Bunch yeah. of Virgos here. <laughs> so, um, you know, I was like square in the demographic of people that would be interested in Pearl Jam at the time. And, um, you know, I was on a podcast recently and I was asked like, you know, when did you get into Pearl Jam? And I was like, well, you didn't really get into Pearl Jam in the early nineties. They were just like, it's like getting into the sun, you know, (laughs) rising in the morning. Like they were just everywhere at some point. And they were just such a big part of youth culture uh, if you were into rock music and you, you were watching MTV, like you just liked Pearl Jam. I mean, they were they were so big uh, at that time, and um, you know, by '98, it seems weird to say now because that was only seven years later. But you know, I was in college at that point, and um, you know. St- the world had changed a lot music had changed a lot and i think i felt like well this is something i liked when i was younger and i have to move on and i remember seeing them live in 98 and it was an amazing show like i i loved it but and i bought yield pretty soon after it came out but i i I think i felt like well you know there's other bands there's other things in my life to care about so, you know, as far as like Benoral and, and Riot Act and stuff, like I was not, I, I didn't buy those records when they came out. I was, I was into other things and it really wasn't until the early 2010s when I was compelled to sort of reinvestigate Pearl Jam and, you know, I saw the Wrigley Field show at 2013, which is like still like one of the great rock experiences of my life. That was an amazing show. It feels like forever ago since we talked about that, right? Yeah, yeah, I talked about that on the show, and but it was amazing, and and it just made me go back and listen to the albums I missed, and also, but in, even more than the albums, but was was digging into the bootlegs of of 2010s and. And just falling back in love with uh, with Pearl Jam at that time, and I wish I could say that I was like with them during that period. And I am mad at myself because there are so many Pearl Jam shows I could have seen in the two thousands that I didn't go to see. You know, like it would have been amazing because I do really love that period. Of, you know, not just the 2000 period, but, you know, 2003 tour. And then you got, like, you know, uh, like 05, 06, like that whole time. And they're just a phenomenal live band. Um, I just did not, I was just checked out at that time. So it was really about kind of going back and listening to that stuff from a bootleg perspective. And then just seeing them as many times as I could after that. I think what you said right there is a lot of the reason why John and I do what we do because John has a very similar path to you as, you know, yeah. John, you were in a punk band and Yeah, you, after after Yield I got way into punk rock and I was like, Well I every, like every time they would release a record I'd like check it out and be like, Okay, I listen to it for like a week and then I put it on the shelf and go back to listening to, you know, whoever but it it, it took me until about probably 2003 or 2004 to really get back into it and then i'm kind of 
in I, i'm like a an older millennial i guess you would say like i was born in 86 so when 10 came out i was four or five and you know being 36 right now at the time where my influence of pearl jam really rose was was during the avocado tour in in, in 2006 so there was tons and look i i i loved them in 1998 i had yield but yeah it definitely fell off for those couple of years in the early 2000s but there are tours that before doing this podcast that i had no prior knowledge of i had no prior knowledge of these shows and because there was such a desire to want to go back and listen to everything and not just that but study it all and then obviously sharing it with people kind of sharing you know my uh my my journey with each show like that's those are the things that that make this really interesting and the way that like anybody from any generation can step into this band and they have so much in front of them that like as you mentioned before just listening to the studio albums really doesn't give it their credit yeah and it's interesting talking to people that are slightly older than me or slightly younger than me because uh, i did a book event last night with with chuck klosterman where we were talking about pearl jam and he's like a little bit older than me and he has like a slightly different perspective on them and then like you are like you know, I guess you're about nine years younger than me, so it's not slightly younger than me, but a, you know, a little bit younger than me. So you have your, your your perspective, and it really does kind of change how you look at the band because I think, like for me, someone who I, I really feel like I grew up with them because I was at a very formative age, like when they came out, and I could, you know, I, I still very sort of like primally remember like their like the prime of their career it really does kind of change how you look at them because like they were a band that was everywhere for about three or four years you know like they were as like present as like taylor swift is now you know as hard as that is to believe maybe for people who aren't alive at the time or like we're maybe a little too young or a little too old to appreciate that but it does i think change the relationship that you have with this band if you were linked with them at that time because like for me they were so tied with that moment in time for a while you know where it did seem like that moment has passed and maybe this band has passed, you know, that's how it felt in 1998 as a, as a college kid. Like, is this band even going to continue at this point? Like, like, cause it seems like they've had their moment and they're done. And that clearly wasn't the case. And that's something I write about in the book, but it's something that I think, I don't know, maybe it's hard to appreciate now because I think that was a very common feeling in the 90s. Even if you, even if you liked Pearl Jam, it just seemed like in 1998, 99, oh, maybe this band is done. Even though they had like a hit in 99, like with Last Kiss, like a totally weird, out of left field hit. Uh, it just seemed like they were way too popular in the early 90s to conceive of them continuing after that in a weird way. Um, but they were able to do that and it's part of their achievement, you know, that they could survive that. Cause sometimes like the biggest curse of a band, I think is to get too popular or not just the band, like of anything, like to have too many people like you in a particular moment in time, it can be the worst thing that can happen to you. And most bands or, you know, actors or whatever the case may be, like, they don't survive that. But somehow Pearl Jam did. All right. Steven, thank you so much for joining us. You will be back 
very, very soon in the next couple of weeks to talk about the Milwaukee Yield show. So yes. we're, we're ready for that. We're waiting for that. And uh, that should be a lot of fun. Obviously, a very important show to talk about that. Uh, but, hey, uh, you know, from us to be involved and to kind of help you out a little bit behind the scenes and not only that, but I don't think we had the knowledge that you went back and listened to a portion of our, our catalog in order to study up for, for this. And I think like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really thankful that you were able to use that as, as a guide along with that, because I, you know, that's, that's what it's there for. Like, I don't want to, sit here and like you know pump out my own stuff and kind of you know pat myself on the back but like you know if you are doing the research and want to learn the facts we've we've done it and it's just i'm glad that you were able to recognize that and use the resource so thank you for for all that definitely yeah and again i just like want to say like for one of the great things about this community are all the fan historians out there. And, uh, you know, as someone who's written this book and I hope that fans get something out of it. I just like want to express my gratitude for the people who have talked about this, who taped shows, who wrote about the shows, who, you know, documented, you know, set lists and have written about shows and have po- it pinpointed, the things that we all need to listen to. It's fairly valuable. And, uh, I really appreciate the work that people like you have done. So I, I just want to make sure that that is acknowledged. Cause I think it's really valuable. Like what everyone has done. I fully agree. Yeah, totally yeah, agree. Yeah. This, this community is, is great. I'm glad that you see that because a lot of people, well, they might not, but after reading your book, I think that's going to open up a lot of eyes. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, we'll we'll talk to you very soon for uh, from Yield Walkie. Yes. Thanks for taking the time. Great. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Well, just like all of the opportunities that we've had to speak to him, it's an absolute pleasure that we get the chance to that we you know we get to hear from him because his perspective. And his knowledge of not just Pearl Jam, but rock and roll history. You know, I I came out of this feeling like I I learned so much. However, I also felt like that could have gone on for another two hours without blinking. Oh, sure. I mean, it's just, it's great to talk to him because you can tell, like, he's, he's a critic. Yes, he's an author, but number one, he's a fan. And you can tell that, like, he, he's definitely lived it. Uh, you know, since he was, like you said, since he was 14 years old. So yeah, just a pleasure to talk to. And if you want to follow him on Twitter, it's at Steven underscore Hyden. He's always sharing his new projects and he's always sharing his opinions of what's going on in the music industry and what's going on with bands nowadays and in the past and all that. He's a great follow. He's yeah. Like he said, he's a friend of the show, so he's a great friend. And uh, at some point, we will be doing a giveaway for a copy of this book. So if you haven't gone and picked it up yet, uh, boy, I mean, you should, because it's just fascinating. For anybody that writes a book about Pearl Jam, it's just interesting to see what direction they come from, because there's a lot of preconceived notions about Pearl Jam sometimes. And I think what we ended up talking about with him was the fact that, you know, the casual fan we'll go back to 10 and not much else. And this was a great opportunity for not just the Pearl Jam fans, but the music community, rock and roll community in general, to learn a little bit more about this and for them to not be sort of some 90s relic. It, 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 I think if those kind of people are able to read this book, I think it's going to open some eyes. I think it's going to lead to a lot of newfound respect for this band. Yeah. The, I mean, and it's kind of a, a good compliment, you know, to, to what we do. The book does a really good job of kind of capturing how powerful and how important they are live. And that that's really, you know, where, like, like you said, where their legacy is going to be made. And, and also it does, uh, it, you know, it doesn't just stop in, in 1998 or 2000. He does a really good job of kind of, covering that you know the post riot act years and is pretty honest about you know where they are and where they're going so 
yeah, I highly recommend it and picking up the book if you're if you're even a casual Pearl Jam fan. Once again, it's called Long Road Pearl Jam and the Soundtrack of a Generation. The places you can get it, well, if you know how to buy books and you know where to buy books, you can buy it those places. Once again, great to talk to Stephen Hyden. Great to hear from him. And you'll hear from us later this week. We will have a new episode on Wednesday covering Austin City Limits from 2009 it's actually night two it's not the one that was televised it's the second night so should be a fun one we'll see you all there thanks for tuning in thanks everybody mm-hmm.